Hey everybody, welcome to episode 314 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm coming to you back from Austin, Texas this week as I'm back from an amazing weekend in Boston for the marathon. And I'm excited about this episode as I step away from the normal coaching content to bring you a Boston Marathon recap with none other than my friend Kara Goucher is joining me to talk through it all, to break down the races and talk about all the weekend vibes that were Boston, which were absolutely amazing, absolutely off the charts. So I'm excited to get back to a recap episode, which I haven't done in a little bit. We're going to jump right into it. So without further ado, here we go with Kara Goucher. Welcome, Kara Goucher, back to the Running Rogue podcast. This is your seventh time on. I went and counted. Really? Yeah. (laughs) What have we talked about? (laughs) I mean, so many things, but the last time we did an episode like this was after the 2020 Olympic marathon trials and we recapped that. So this time we're recapping Boston and our, our weekend there plus the races. Yeah, I do remember that because the trials were so fun. Um, but Boston was super fun too. It was, it was, you were there Friday through Sunday, had events every day. How are you recovering? from your weekend in Boston? Um, so I can't sleep on planes and I got on the plane and I immediately fell asleep. I was like, oh, I'm tired. I don't know, like people that race that like did all the events, all the shakeout runs, I don't know how they do it. And I was mentioning this to you right before we hit record and you were like, don't say it yet. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how Des ran 227 because she right. did a whole book tour leading into Boston. Then she probably did like six events while she was there. And I was like, when she when I saw her come across in 227, I was like, damn, that is so first of all, that's just like a really, really good solid time, especially on the Boston course. And then with like all the fatigue she had, I was so impressed. Like I couldn't even stay awake on an airplane and she went out and ran a marathon. It's crazy. And she ran pretty even splits. I think she came through in 113 and change and then finished in 227. I mean, unbelievable. Obviously, I know. We know she's disappointed with 18th place, but that would have been top 10. Any other year. Basically any other year, yeah, yeah. Which, which makes it even more impressive. But yeah, I don't know how she did all of that. Ran the, I don't By itself, I don't know how she did all of the events. And no. then separately, you add in the race. It's just, it's insane. And I know she welcomes all the people that love her, but she's like, I mean, someone called me the mayor of Boston this week and I was like, "Uh, have you heard of Des Linden? Like she literally is like the mayor and she welcomes all that, but it is tiring, right? Like it it is, it does take energy. And all she had was Sunday to just like be by herself. Like I think she's off to another book tour now. Like that girl needs to like get on a plane, get the heck out of Dodge and throw her phone away for a month. But (laughs) anyway, I mean, it didn't hurt her. She ran so well. She ran so well. So impressive. And we can talk more about that when we get into the races, but but we have to talk about your weekend events. We You kicked it off on Friday with the de- first ever Des and Kara live podcast from the Brooks house. What was your impression of that? Um, it was really fun. People are excited. It was a little awkward because I'm normally just like I am right now at home and Des is just like a little blip on my screen. And usually we both have like dogs under our feet and... 
you know, there were people looking at us. So that it, it definitely had a different feel than when we do it at home. But I think like once we got into it, the weirdness kind of went away. Again, like I'm not around Des that often. So like I forced my awkward hug on her yeah. and then we just like got to work. Yeah. It was good. It was good. It was good. You were there. Obviously, did you see I posted a picture of us and did you see what someone wrote? Someone was like, where have you been hiding I him? <laughs> what? Oh my. Yes. They're like, oh my gosh, where have you been hiding him? <laughs> that's awkward. <laughs> yeah, that's why I have that. to bring it up. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Okay, now, yeah. Okay, I want everyone to know that Chris is blushing so bad right now. <laughs> oh <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I was there to help with sound, do what I do, make sure we captured it so that it can go out next week. It'll it'll post next Tuesday. So, maybe, stay tuned for that. But Maybe your listeners don't know that you are the third member of our team. I've told them, Kara, because I told them to listen. And I'm okay. very proud of the work that you guys are doing. So they know well, it from me. Well, it's a team effort. There's no podcast without Chris. Chris told us what, like I told Chris we were thinking about doing it. He immediately is like, this is what you need. Here's what you guys need to order. Um, and then we, and then he's like, and I'll, I'll edit it for you basically. Like he volunteered and there would be no podcast without you like making us go do it. Well, I appreciate that. It's, I mean, for me, it's, I get the easy job, which is just, to make sure you guys sound good once it goes through the channels, but it's a whole lot of fun to work with you guys on it. And it was fun to be there. The The place was packed. I mean, the room that you guys were in was small and I think there were about 50 people standing room only in that space. And then there were people on the other floors, two other floors of the Brooks house, just sitting on the floor, listening to the speakers and I know. completely packed house, but pretty awesome. It was great. It was cool that so many people showed up and, you know, it's maybe next time we'll be more prepared and we'll have like a bigger venue, but it was still really fun. Yeah. We need a bigger venue. I mean, you guys could sell tickets, I'm sure, but future. Future. And of course you guys talked about potentially calling a race together. Yeah. This is like my dream. Yeah. Yeah. We need to make that. We need to make sure that happens. I want to do it in a professional sense. And then yes. I also want to do it in a Manning cast type sense. Um, I want both. My I'm putting it into the universe that <laughs> I want the professional, but also the fun, casual, relaxed. Yes. I hope the universe is listening. <laughs> okay. So there was that. And then you had Saturday, you had your Wazelle event. Now you went out to cheer on the 5K runners and then had your Wazelle panel with Lauren Fleshman. Of course, Sally was there as well. I got to listen in at the brewery over in Cambridge Lamplighter. That was pretty fun too, but different because it was more panel Q&A with Atsuko leading. How'd that one feel to you? It was good. I think that's what Wazel does best. I think we've kind of gotten away from that, but we're trying to get back into that where we meet as a, a Wazel community, you know, and we ha- we talk about what we want to talk about. And I think we haven't done that as much over the last few years. So it was really fun to get a group of people together and there were people that didn't have tickets that just like came and showed up, but it was, the space was big. And so it worked out just fine. Um, but yeah, it was really fun to feel that energy again and specifically around Wazelle. And like, yeah, if you were there, you'll find out a t-shirt that's going to be coming out next year based on that that's conversation. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was really fun. It was really fun to be there. Yeah. And the John G 
some of the John D team was there too, which was fun to see that that synergy starting to develop and helping to plan that event and make it happen. Yeah. And then Sunday, you had a panel at the expo with Allison Desir, Lauren again, and then Christine Yu. I didn't get to see that one. How was it? It was good. It was it was definitely the most intense thing I did while I was there. Conversation was a lot more serious, but it wasn't it, not in a bad way, just, you know, tackling hard topics. So it was good. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, Lauren and Allison and Christine, like they're change makers. So it was cool to be around them and to listen to them speak. And just, you know, I was kind of like, at, they would have these really deep answers. So here's the thing. <laughs> I I am deep, I swear, but I just kind of like say what's on my mind. And so sometimes when I'm on these panels, I'm like, how did I get here? Because I don't have the, I have deep thoughts, but I don't know how to articulate it like everyone else. So I, f- I felt a little bit like I was JV with the varsity, but it was really fun. Okay. <laughs> you do just fine. I think <laughs> your strength is just the authenticity of your responses. Not that they aren't authentic, but I think that really comes across in how you present yourself. And I would never think that you or say that you weren't as polished or deep as anyone else. I'm definitely not as polished, but thanks, Chris. (laughs) For whatever it's worth, (laughs) friend to friend. And then you were off. You couldn't stay for the races, unfortunately. So you had to fly back on Sunday, Sunday. Marathon Monday. Did you watch? I did. So I was supposed to have jury duty on Monday, but I was actually dismissed. So I was able to watch the whole thing, basically. Just I missed the very beginning. Um, And so I was I was happy to be in my like I I actually really like watching the broadcast alone because I have a lot of thoughts and I yell sometimes. And (laughs) yeah, it was good. It was good to have my own space and not embarrass myself in front of other people. So one thing I want to start with before we get into the races, several years ago, they changed the start sequence. It used to be the women would go off, and then about 25 minutes later, the men would go off with the main field. That shifted ostensibly under the idea that they wanted to get the women more airtime because essentially under the prior format, what would happen is both races would kind of be coming together at a similar time. And... So they switched it. So they flipped it. So the men now start a little bit first, then the women 10 minutes later. So theoretically, you can have the women all on their own platform over the final four miles or so of the race after the men finish. How do you feel about that? I do not like it. I ran it when it was the other way. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, first of all, it's always fun to be the the first runners that they see. Obviously, the wheel the wheel chase racers go through, but like, being the first of the, you know, of the marathoners, to, the runners to come through is just so exciting because people are just like, they're, they're ready to go. They're ready to see runners. So it's just, it's exciting as an athlete. And that's, so men deserve to have that excitement too. But I think that before, yeah, everybody finished together, but there wasn't this, I just like, don't want to get any more hate mail. Twitter's been really harsh on me the last few days, but I feel like the men finish and then we keep interviewing the men and we lose the women's race. I actually feel like right. we lose it more. And then the women are coming in with men. The The lead women are coming in with, I just feel like it's confusing. I don't, I don't like it as much. I totally understand why it was done, but unfortunately the coverage, it, do, it doesn't give the women 
more coverage. And in fact, I feel like it hurts them. Um, It hurts them. Yeah. You don't get the good storytelling that you used to get before the men came off about who's in the field, how it might play out, how the races start. And yes, in theory, it might be better, but in practice, it's not happening the way I think that it was intended. And part of that's the limitations of the broadcast and all of that. But you're right. I mean, we saw less of the women's race than I think even the wheelchair races. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I don't have any, I don't have any problem seeing the wheelchair races and no, they should awesome. have their platform as well. But when you stacked it all up and I'm sure somebody's done the analysis on this, the women got the least amount of coverage and you're right. After the men finish, they're interviewing the men watching the stragglers come through versus switching over to what was big moves happening on the women's side. And that, that was frustrating. Yeah, I was frustrated watching it at home. I was like, don't say anything. Broadcasting is so hard. Don't say anything. And then I just like lost it because they we have split screen now. And so there's two cameras that we can be seeing at all times. And we kept going back to Kipchoge. And while I get it, he is the, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, because I gave you a hot takes uh, text the other day. Yes. He's the greatest marathoner of all time. I get it. It's We don't normally see him struggle. But at some point, it's like, okay, we'll catch up with him later because it's it's a little bit disrespectful now to the men who are actually leading. And also, right. we're split screening two different men's races, right? We're the lead pack and wherever Kipchoge is like, what are we doing? We're The women's race is developing. Um, people, it was starting to splinter a little bit and we weren't getting to see any of that. And it was really frustrating. And I, it's, I don't like to criticize because I'm in broadcasting and it is hard. Sometimes you just get whatever feed they're giving you. Um, but I felt like, oh my God, like someone needs to, at the next commercial break, say like, what are we doing? There's a women's race happening. We have to get back to that. So it was hard. It was hard to watch. It was frustrating. Yeah. Especially once Kipchoge was out of the race. I mean, it was obvious fairly quickly that he was done. His cadence completely changed. He wasn't fighting back on the men at the front knew that he was on the ropes and they took it. Yeah. You texted me, you smell blood and they did, (laughs) right? And it was quick and decisive. It was so shockingly over for him so quickly. And yet you're right. We kept getting the split screen of the motorbike following Kipchoge videotaping him. Although mysteriously, when he allegedly stopped and restarted, no one knows what happened, even though they had a camera guy on him. And I still haven't heard what happened with that sequence where suddenly they thought he may have dropped and then he wasn't out yeah. of the race. That to me was very odd. That was weird. So let's talk, let's talk about the races now. We'll start with the men's race. The thing that you and I were texting about during the race was just the fact that Kipchoge took it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't normally the, you know, the fields dot a little bit at the beginning because there aren't pacers, they're feeling each other out. And yet Kipchoge was to the front, pushing the pace on course record pace very early. Obviously they would fade off of that, but I, I, how, I mean, could you believe that he was playing it that way? Um, listen, there's no shame in having a rookie race at Boston. I think a lot of people have, but <laughs> I was like, what's it doing? Here's the thing about Boston. And we saw Connor Mance. This doesn't make Connor Mance any less of a great marathoner. He was just out too aggressively, right? Here's the thing about Boston. People are like, I did all the hills. I did all the whatever. But it's not like a New York where it's constant re-rolling. It's 
down, 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 down. You think you're flying. Everything feels easy, but your body is still absorbing that. Now you have to climb on your legs that you're realizing, wow, they're beat up. And then you have to run hard once you get out of the climbing. So it's, I feel like people underestimate that sequence and how they should train for it and especially how they race it. So I guess that was for me, like I did watch an interview, I think the day before with Kipchoge was like, I didn't train any differently. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, this guy's run under two hours. Like he's, he's the man for a reason. But it was very interesting to me to watch it and say, oh yeah, no, like you have to respect the Boston Marathon course. There's a reason why a lot of elites don't want to come because it's very, very challenging. The times aren't fast and it takes a a certain type of training and dedication to get it right. And that's why we see a lot of the elites, they don't want to waste their time with that. They go to London and I get it. They race fast, but there's something about Boston that people like me love because it is a challenge and it isn't a time trial. And it just seemed like we were watching a rookie Boston runner. That's what it felt like. But then I kept thinking, but it's Kipchoge, right? Like he's going to be fine. Um, But he wasn't. He wasn't. I mean, I, I, there've been many that have tried to lead from the gun in Boston. And I don't know that any have successfully pulled that off. Very rarely, right? Very tall task. Do you think that's what cost him? You know, he didn't give a lot of like, so I think he wouldn't, he didn't really do interviews on Monday and he released a statement, I think. Um, and he, he didn't really say what happened. Like he felt tired or whatever, but I think that, I mean, it's a little weird for me to be like, this is where Kipchoge messed up. Um, <laughs> but that is how I feel. I feel like he ran it like I a mean, rookie. And he it. Come on. He Okay, that's what I'm going to do. He should have sat back and he should have watched the people who have run it before. He should have been watching Evans Chibet. He should have been watching what they were doing and he should have waited until the appropriate time. And look, we've, I, we've, I've made that mistake there. It, it, to me, I think the most shocking thing was I was like, oh my God, he's human. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Like he <laughs> makes racing mistakes too. What? I mean, that's, it's amazing actually. Um, obviously it was super exciting to have him there and see him out on the course, but I, I do think he was just, I think he was out too quick, but I mean, he might tell me I'm totally wrong, but. Well, and he just didn't need to do it. I mean, that's the thing I go back to is your, everyone's looking at you. Everyone's looking at you. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> you know, you can dictate the field from the back, if you want, of that lead pack. And so, so I guess, you, you know, you got to give him props for going for it because he was talking about trying to break the course record and he straight up went for it, but it definitely cost him. And it was just shocking how quickly it was over because Gay pushed it on the uphill. The guy from Tanzania who would get second pushed it on the uphill around 18 in Newton and... They got a little bit of a gap. Everybody looked around, saw that gap, and they went. There was yep. blood in the water as I texted you, and yeah. that was it. It was over. It was done. And like you said, too, you were the one that pointed it out while I was watching. His cadence completely changed. It went from like pushing, pushing, pushing to like jogging it in. Yep. This isn't going to happen today. Right. Um, but I actually think, I mean, Evans Chibet was the man of the day. Obviously, he won. But I actually thought Gay was one of the tougher athletes I saw out there because when he pushed at 18, I was like, oh, it's too soon. It's too soon. Um, And he had fallen back a bit. And then he fought down Boylston to get second place. I thought that was really impressive. It's hard to, as we saw with Kipchoge, it's hard to recover from those mistakes on a course that's just unforgiving like that. Yeah, and usually the early aggressors aren't necessarily the ones that end up in in the front the 
But Tibet, I mean, you mentioned him. He was, first of all, it's hard to defend in Boston. I think it's only been done nine other times. And after Heartbreak Hill, he just kept surging. And those guys, then he would kind of let them collect back and then he would surge again. He just kept throwing punches at them and then eventually decided it was done and pulled away with about a mile to go and and looked clearly the class of the field on the day. But think of that in that first half when we saw Kipchoge pushing, where was he? Tucked we in. Weren't even, he was tucked in. Nobody saw him because he knows what you have to do. Don't expand any energy, unnecessary energy in those early parts. Like it's hard not to. The crowds are amazing. You're rolling downhill. You're like, oh, I just put 437. That didn't even feel hard. I mean, not me, but they did. Um, <laughs> but it, the more invisible you are in the beginning, typically the better you end up doing. Now, one thing I have to bring up about Chabet, because, you know, we co-host the Clean Sport podcast, is the fact that his agent is Gianni DeMadona, who has had several athletes with doping positives in the last couple of years. And I must say that it's frustrating to me to continue to see athletes from agents who have that history and track record show up at the front of these races. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Chibet is clean or not. I don't purport to know. But I will say it is disheartening as a fan to see an athlete win who has an agent who's been connected to so many doping positives over the last several years. I agree. Uh, this is an issue that you really love to point out. And and it's like every time they get a positive, you're like, oh, weird. <laughs> you know. And at what point and, – and actually his eight that agent has been kind of weird, like blaming the athletes, like always throws the athlete under the bus. Yeah. Totally kicks them to the curb and is like, Oh, they were definitely cheating. And it's like, at some point you have to look under your, like in your own house, right? Like how is this happening over and over again? So I don't appreciate the way that that agent has spoken about athletes that have tested positive. Look, you test positive. In my opinion, you're gone, but nobody dopes alone. Right. And when you have this stable of athletes, at what point are you partially responsible? And I think you and I think that point has come and gone. Um, But unfortunately, that's not the way the system works. Well, and at a minimum, even if let's just assume for a moment, the agent is not involved in doping anyone. Let's assume that for a moment. Even if that's true, you still have a responsibility to the sport to weed out those athletes and to do your due diligence to make sure that you're putting forward to these major marathons, athletes that are doing it the right way. And yet it doesn't seem that he takes any responsibility for that. And that's frustrating to me. Yeah. He just kicks it off on the athlete and is like, oh, they were definitely cheating. It's like, okay, well, if you like, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to make sure, what are you going to do to make sure your other athletes aren't like that? Um, it's hard. The association piece is hard, right? Because I want to be like discredit all these athletes, but that's not fair. And even we've seen in Kipchoge's training camp, he's had a few positives out of his own training camp this past year, I think like in the last 12 to 16 months. And so it's tough. It's a tough position to be in. And the truth of the matter is every athlete deserves to be out there until, until they aren't allowed to anymore. But I think your point always like really sticks with me. It's like, what are we doing to really hold everyone accountable? Because the way it is right now, we're not. We're not. And I, and this is where I actually think that the major marathons themselves and those that run them like the BAA need to actually take a stand. I mean, AIU isn't going to do it. 
World Athletics isn't going to do it. So who's going to do it? And I feel like the major marathons are the gatekeepers for these athletes in many ways. And they could take a stand and they could say, look, we're not going to be taking athletes from agents that have these affiliations. I would like to see that happen. Probably won't, but I would like to see that happen because they could make a difference and change things. Right. But then they're also risking losing some of the best athletes in the world, right? I mean, I agree with you. They should do it. They should say, they say they want these amazing clean races that they should do that. But it's kind of like a lot of things in running. It's like you attack that and then you lose everything else, right? So I don't know. I do think that's a good suggestion. It is. Uh, And you have a fair counter point. But Boston's had, what, two on the women's side, at least, winners that were ultimately found to be cheaters in the last eight years. Yeah. Yeah. In the last eight years. So 25% on the women's side, and I'm not thinking of any off the top of my head on the men's side, but same. So, and that's part of the problem. Right. Oh, for sure. They're not, they're not doing their job and their due diligence to say who is clean and who is not. Because look, these agents aren't putting forward athletes that aren't ready. Mm-hmm. Right. No one's entering <laughs> and, the Boston Marathon three days before and is going to come in and win it. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'll get off my soapbox there, but that's one thing that's frustrating. Another interesting note for me in this one was the one, the fact that if you look at the super shoe thing, that the the playing field is at least level when you look at the major brands, right? We had, in this case, Adidas had four out of the top six on the podium. I have a theory as to why. Nike was one athlete. On had an athlete. But Emma Bates with Asics was right in the mix. Sarah Hall with Asics ran a great race, got the master's record. We'll talk about that in a second. But it seems that from that perspective, relatively even playing field. But I thought it was was interesting that Adidas had four out of the top six. And I have a theory that potentially that's potentially because they use car rubber, literally car rubber, continental rubber on the bottom of their shoes. And I've worn a pair of shoes that had that on it several years ago from Adidas in wet, wet weather, wet, wet weather. And it was absolutely amazing, the traction. And on a slick day with a little bit of rain, I can't help but think that that had some potential impact on the outcome here. Yeah, I, I've read about that too. Look, I've never put on an Alpha Fly or a Vapor Fly. I feel like my whole body would light on fire. But I have <laughs> heard that they aren't the best in the wet conditions, right? I think it's great that we're like, finally, things are level. But you know, there's still a part of me that's like, okay, what about the last seven years when it was? I'm sorry, I beat yeah. a dead horse. It's dead. It's like, please stop beating me. Okay. But anyway, um, I'm just, it just, I am, it, it like, even when you're talking about it, I'm getting excited. I'm like, yeah, it's finally a level playing field. But then I'm like, what the heck? Why weren't, why didn't we care that it wasn't for so long? Um, but yeah, I heard about that traction issue as well. But you would think that by now, I mean, I don't know. Our friendship will not fall apart if you say yes. But have you run in an Alpha Fly or a Vapor Fly? I've not. Because I would think that after 2018, they would have gotten the grip situated. But I really don't know anything about Nike shoes anymore. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I've only heard secondhand. But I do know the Continental Rubber that Adidas uses is is really good for traction. 
But it was just interesting to me because you had the podium sweep of Adidas on the men's side, second place on the women's side, on, of course, one. And the last time Kipchoge faltered was in London when it was also a slick day. So just a theory. Who knows if it's true? Just a theory, but kind of interesting. Okay, let's talk about the American men. Connor Manson and CJ Albertson went with the leaders. They went out in 102, just insanely fast opening half for Boston. What do you make? And then ultimately faltered and and I think finished third and fourth Americans on the day. Well, that's we know that CJ runs Boston that way. This is his third year in a row. And he couldn't lead this time because Kipchoge was taking <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he he tried to go to the front, but um <laughs> I think we know that he feels most comfortable doing that. And for me at this point, I want to see him I want to see him do something different. He won't run it next year because it's the trials, but I would really like to see him with a different strategy because clearly he's strong and he's really good over the final 10 kilometers. Um, but he loses so much distance in the climb. And so if I was his coach, which I'm not. Um, I'd be like, we really need to work on that. I mean, I mean, he's an incredible ultra athlete. Like he has so much strength. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I would be like, let's race it a totally different way and see what happens. As far as Connor Mance, I think it was a rookie Boston mistake, but I like it because I think like he wants to win. He doesn't want to just be top American, right? He wants to win the Boston marathon. And so even though I feel like he's going to go home and have to really think about like, ooh, what I did wrong, I think and I would rather see that than see him just like hang back and learn, I mean, learn the race and take, you know, move up slowly. I like that he was like, I'm here to win. I'm here to run with the front. I'm here to run with the best marathoner in the world. So I thought that was good. It was good to see. Yeah, I think it was the right move in a sense. I think he probably knew in the back of his head that it was going to be a a tough finish. But if you look at the results, the top six men all came from that that pack, you know, right. through through two Kipchoge. So unless you went with that move, you weren't you weren't going to be able to win. It was such a strong move, and yes, Kipchoge faltered perhaps because he was doing the aggressing or being the aggressor. But but everybody else in that pack was there essentially. Right to to take the top five above Kipchoge. So in a sense, if you're racing, you don't have a choice. And yeah. I, I can't imagine Connor Mance is worried about what first American. He's he as you said, he he wanted to win. Yeah. And I mean first American is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. It's a really big deal. But I think that he didn't go in there worrying about that. I think he went in there being like, I want to win or be as close as possible. And to do that, I got to go with the big dogs. And so you know, I'm sure he's licking his wounds a little bit right now, but he had a hell of a debut. And I like that the tenacity that we saw. That's what I like about it. It was bold and he was right in the mix. You and can he tell. didn't drop out. You know, he didn't finished. drop out. He could have easily been like, wow, I blew that and stepped off, but he finished. So I think he showed a lot of, I don't know, he showed a lot of guts, I thought. Speaking of dropping out, one thing I was thinking about as it relates to appearance fees based on what you know, how. Do you have to finish in order to get your appearance fee? Depends on the marathon or or how much money you're being offered. I think some of the smaller contracts, not necessarily, but yes, you have to finish if you have a big contract. Yeah, you'll <laughs> you'll see a reduction. Yes. Yeah. So that that's one thing that I think pl- has to play into an sure. elite athlete. Now, of course, Kipchoge probably maybe that didn't matter. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't in his contract. I'd be curious to know because it was impressive that he finished. 
Scott Fable went with the second pack. You, I mean, we really only saw him at the very beginning after Kipchoge made the move. You could tell he decided that that was too hot for him. So he pulled back. They formed a second pack. They went through, I think, about 90 seconds slower than the leaders. And then ultimately, we didn't see him again until Boylston. And he was rolling Flying in, by people. Rolling in, competing head-to-head with another athlete that had been in the second pack to get seventh instead of eighth fairly close to Kipchoge at the end. Third time to be top American, third time seventh at Boston. What do you make of his race? Well, Scott Fobble knows the course really well. And like we're talking about earlier, he knows when it's too hot for him. Um, I think he's proven now that he is one of the best marathoners, if not the best marathoner in the United States. And so what I would like to see is him go back to Boston, not next year, but the year after that, and actually try to win it. I would love to see him like get in there because it's not that he's not trying to win, but he's also like, okay, that's a little too quick. I know it's too quick. And he was right. I mean, he was just mowing down people at the end. Um, but I love to see him risk a little more the next time he goes for it because we know he can run 209. I don't care what day of the week Scott Fobble is going to run 209 on the Boston course, but I bet he could go. I do think he can go faster. And I'd love to see him risk a little bit more and just be like, hey, if I blow up, I blow up. Right. Yeah, it's so it's so hard to think about that decision because if he had gone with the lead group, he probably would have ended up in a similar situation to Mance and Albertson. But here he is, top American again. You got to give him credit. You got to give credit to his coach, Joe mm-hmm. Bossard, who also yeah. had top American on the women's side, and Emma Bates. It's impressive to have a 1,500-meter Olympian, a steeplechase Olympian, and then the top two at Boston on the men's and women's side. So you got to give Joe some credit. You know, I obviously Joe Bossard's a friend of mine. So everything I say now is through, you know, a a friend filter. But I, I think one of the things that makes Joe a good coach is that he's not afraid to talk to other coaches, take advice, change things up. And I think sometimes coaches get stuck in their way of like how they do things. One of the things I think Joe is really good at is saying, I don't know if this is working or I'm not sure that I really know how to coach someone at Boston. So I'm going to go out there and admit that. I'm going to talk to people and have people help me. And I think he's kept a really open mind uh, for years and he still does. And I think that makes him a really good coach. He's not like set in these ways that he can't shift from. He is willing to talk and learn. He's constantly reading articles and learning and reading research and pestering other coaches. And I think that makes him a really good coach. Also seems that outside in that he's really good at tailoring things to the athlete. He knows yeah, he, how to bring out the strengths of each runner. Yeah. He knows that everyone has different personalities, right? And he knows the things that make each athlete more confident. And it's not the same. Emma, what gives Emma confidence is not the same thing that gives Aisha Lear confidence. And so he, even though they're both were running the steeple for a long time, now I, now I, she's more 1500, but he knew that they needed different things at different times. They had different things they got confidence from. And that was kind of their first athlete that he coached aside from Emma. And I think he's just done a really good job of meeting the athlete where they are and, um, learning who they are as a person, what motivates them, what they get confidence from. And I don't, I don't even know how anyone could argue he's not a great coach. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> so before we switch to the women's race, we got to quickly talk about the hot take you texted me <laughs> during the race, which is to say that you don't think Kipchoge is the goat, that in fact, Paula Radcliffe is the goat. So I've 
I've done my homework on this debate. I knew like, you would. Like, give me your case. I was like, Chris is going to go through every event, <laughs> every Olympics, every World Cross, and he's going to come at me locked and loaded to tell me I'm wrong. Okay, this is just a casual observation, but <laughs> Kipchoge, we all say he's the greatest of all time. He's broken the world record multiple times. He's only lost twice ever out of what, 13 or 12 marathons? Three now. But, three now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, three. Um <laughs> But he ha- this was my this was my hot take. Do you get to be the greatest marathoner of all time when you only dominate on the flat and flat and fast courses? Or to be the greatest marathoner of all time, should you be the greatest marathoner on every type of course? And New- and Paula won New York three times. She won Helsinki World Champs. That was hilly, I believe. She's won London. She's won Chicago. She set multiple world records herself. So I was just kind of like, I, I think that, I think Paula might be the goat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's when you first texted that, I was pretty incredulous. I'm like, there, <laughs> come on. I'm like, come on, Karen, that's absurd. <laughs> but when I did my homework, it is closer than I think people might give Paula credit for. So here, here are the stats. So Kipchoge, first of all, he's won 14 out of 17 marathons, which is pretty absurd, including two gold medals, four Berlin, one Tokyo, one Chicago, four London, one Hamburg, one Rotterdam. Of course, he's had the world record, which he broke his own world record, but he's owned it essentially for the last five years. Paula won eight out of 11 of her marathons, including Helsinki gold medal at world champs, three London, three New York, one Chicago. So and held the world record for 16 years before Koskai broke it. And pre-Super Shoes. Like and put it out of touch pre-Super Shoes. Five of Kipchoge's wins, I think, came before Super Shoes. And now nine have come after. So I still think with the gold medals and the world record. Okay, and but no, more like, wins. listen, stop. <laughs> put all of the accolades aside. Yes, he is more decorated. There is no argument there. But I, if I'm thinking the GOAT, okay, the greatest <laughs> of all time, they are the mastery of the marathon. It doesn't matter if it's London, it doesn't matter if it's New York, it doesn't matter if it's Boston, it doesn't matter if it's an Olympic Games, they're going to master it. And I'm just saying, I think based on those criteria that I arbitrarily pulled from my head, I yeah. think Paula Radcliffe is the, is the goat. And, and I think that Kipcho- she is the goat goat and Kipchoge is the goat of men. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I do. It will be interesting to see what happens. Cause I think Kipchoge had talked about doing New York potentially if, if the Boston win happened, he seemed to be backpedaling a little bit from that in his interview, I believe on Tuesday. So we'll see to me, he has to do it now. You know, he yeah. has to go get that, that more challenging course without pacers and all of that. Cause yeah, he's done it. I mean, every other win of his has been on a flat course. Well, with the exception of the Olympic golds, those weren't perfectly flat. I know Rio was, was a little bit rolling. So perhaps that statement's a little bit unfair, but his major wins have all been flat and fast with pacers. And so we've got to see a major win on a different, Course, Look like it. I'm making you think you're questioning <laughs> Kipchoge, but his career is still being written, so we'll see. That's true, but that's true. It's, but I will say, I have to give you full credit because after I did my research, I'm like, you know, it's much closer than I initially thought, and so Paula should get 
more credit. So I was going to tweet that, but then I was like, uh, I don't want people accusing me of not liking Kipchoge. But now that I've gotten you to consider it, I might tweet that. <laughs> You're a glutton for punishment, though. Clearly. Yeah, actually, no. It's been a rough week, so I won't. All right. So let's talk about the women's race. I would say this one went out as you would expect for the first 10K or so. The first 5K was 17.50 and change, quote, jogging as it appeared on the screen. Second 5K, a little faster, 17 flat. And then somewhere in there, around 10K, somebody made a move. They ran a 508 mile and that broke the race completely apart. And then it was on from there to the finish. And I believe even Emma Bates was initially thrown off of that group with that 508 mile, but then was able to get back on while all the other Americans were left to run essentially on their own. Well, that's interesting you pointed that out because I went running after the Boston Marathon and you could tell all the runners in Boulder who actually cared about the marathon because they were all getting a late start to their runs. And I ran into Emma Coburn who trains with Emma Bates and she was saying that that Emma's strength is not flipping a switch like that. It's the long grind. And so I was giving her Emma's race strategy for 2025 so that I, because I, I think she, I think she could win it. Um, uh, but anyway, I think that that mile did throw her off, but then she worked her way back into it. And then I think again, at the end, like she just, you know, she's more of like, I can ride this line for a really, really long time. And maybe over time she'll get that, that flip, but you don't have to have that because you can grind earlier out. Yeah. And I mean, the interesting thing, so she, yeah, she found her way back. I mean, that shows composure, right? She didn't let that initial move throw her off. She was able to climb back in get with that pack. She was so smooth and efficient and pretty tucked in for most of the early parts of the race after that initial split. And then towards the end, after heartbreak, she went to the front. Yeah. And I know you were having PTSD. I was having deja vu. I was like, not yet, not yet. Or do it and do it right. Yeah. I was definitely having PTSD, but, but she's so much more experienced than I was. So I was, you know, she's already run at two Olympic trials or one or two Olympic trials. She's already run at the world championships. She's, and she's been second in Chicago, like had so much more experience than I did, but I was like, Oh God, I I'm like reliving 2009. Don't go yet. Or if you do like go, go, go. Um, but I think she ran an amazing race. I mean, she ran 222 in Boston on a cold day. Um, does that translate to American record fitness? I think so. Me too. I mean, I would argue that, especially, I mean, it was a negative split by, I think, at least a minute. So, you know, and they jogged the first 5K. If you could, if you take that out even on a flat course, for sure, she's right there in the mix. Yeah, I think that um, she could be the best marathoner in America. I mean, I don't know. Emily Sisson didn't care. There's so many good people, it's really hard to say. But I think that she really cemented her status in that race. And I think, at, you know, she was feeling a little, little antsy. I think we saw her moving out and, you know, I wanted her to be a little bit more invisible, but I think she didn't, she didn't make any big mistakes or anything like that. I just think it was, you know, it, it had it been more of a grind, a slower grind fest, maybe she would have been able to nab it, but fifth place in your first Boston and eight seconds off the American course record. I mean, it's not too shabby. No doubt. And I don't, I really don't think, I don't think any tactic changes would have affected the outcome simply because when that final move happened with Obiri really taking it 
I don't think she would have had that gear change, whether she'd right. been hooked in or whether she was leading because she did look super composed and in control when she was leading. It wasn't like she was pressing right. really hard from the front. She was just running her rhythm. And as we were texting, I mean, she is the most efficient runner you'll ever see. Well, Twitter, let me know that what looks efficient and what's happening inside is not necessarily oh a correlation. <laughs> But I'm just going to say that I think she's the most, one of the most beautiful marathoners I've ever seen. Everything is moving forward. Nothing is wasted. There's no hip action. There's no arm action. There's no awkward leg swing. Everything is moving her forward through space. It's, I really enjoy watching her race. I think it's really beautiful. It is. It was interesting to me at one point as she was leading, this would have been about mile 23. The camera was zoomed in on her and she did a little glance to the side to see who was still with her at that point. And I just thought, oh no, that was the first sign of weakness. She's starting to hurt a little bit. And not long after that, the woman fell. Mm. Obiri clearly used that as an opportunity to say, okay, it's time to take this. And that was it. Basically, yeah. two miles to go, the definitive move. And certainly it was fun to watch them battle it out. But you knew who was going to win once that last move was made. I was texting with my coworker, Paul Swangard, because he was calling the race for um, World Feed. He was like, give me your pick. And I was like, Obiri all the way. And he was like, what? Like she faltered in New York. And I was like, and there were women that had run 214, 217. There were so many sub 220 women. I was like, yeah, but this race is different. And I think she she was so upset with how New York went. I was like, she's so hungry. I think she'll be super hard to beat. So I was super happy that she proved me right. But her move after they came under the highway and then was heading up to Hereford, I mean, she literally looked like a sprinter. Her arms, everything about her changed. She opened up and her arms were like flying. And I thought like, oh, maybe she went a little too soon. But it just continued to, her lead just continued to get bigger and bigger as she turned on Boylston and ran down. It was very impressive. Yeah. Chris Chavez, I think has said, if once she goes to the arms, it's over. And and it is, it's just violent. She's violent. Oh, I know. Punching with those arms, punching the air. And you can tell when she has it and when she doesn't. In that case, I'm, you know, it was obvious to me that she was going to take, take first. Yeah, it was an impressive run. No doubt about it. Really impressive. And really f- just fun race. Both, really, ultimately, both races were fun to watch. I mean, at some level, there was drama all the way to the end. So kudos. Yeah, to and the women's race in particular... Like Alephine ran 224 and got 11th. Right. I mean, I, so, I felt bad because I was like, oh, there's other American women because we hadn't seen them at all. And they were running fast. Nell Rojas ran a big PR too. Like, and I think she was uh, 12th or 13th. Sarah Hall ran 225. She was like 15th or 16th, right? Yeah. Or 17th. She was 17th. Yeah, because Des was the next one on the road to 18th. But see, this is why I wish the women's race had gone first. Because that was a story worth telling. That was, without a doubt, the deepest women's field at Boston ever. And that was a story worth telling. That 227, which gets you on the podium, or at least top five, pretty much every year, was 18th. And what a dip, like the amount of women running well in our sport right now is really inspiring. And so I felt like that was a missed opportunity in the broadcast to tell that story. But that, but that was also because the women started second. So anyway. Yeah, there were four on the American side. There were four of the top 10 performances ever at Boston yeah. on the day. And yet 
only one of those was top five. We could, we could have been using that split screen right. to go back and see Alephine and see Nell and see Sarah and see Des and be able to say they are running crazy fast. Like what you're witnessing is a magical moment in Boston because these women are running so fast right now. They're going to run into the U.S. record books. And there was a, yeah, for me, it was just a missed opportunity to really, to really show just how deep women's marathoning is. It was a PR for Alephine, a master's record for Sarah Hall, who turned 40 the day before the race. Nell, I feel bad for her. She was top 10 first American in the last two that she's raced. And, and this time was even faster than those. She's gotten faster every time she's raced Boston. And yet her place has fallen each year as well. That's just insane. And and then, yeah, Des, of course, bringing up the rear. <laughs> right, right. Oh, good old Des. It's like, no, she's hammering. She's running so fast. 227 in 18th place. I, I mean, it's, it's insane, really. And kind of great, but sad, too, at the same time, because we missed so many great stories because the race was just in a different place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was an awesome race. And again, it, it stinks because we didn't get to see those storylines. But it is exciting, too, to see also like the international field at Boston isn't always this deep. And it's cool to see international athletes like really taking Boston seriously and and putting it on the same level as a London or a Berlin. You know, I feel like when I was racing, it, it wasn't as deep like that, which just sort of like I just knocked myself because I didn't win or anything, but I think that the field is a lot deeper and I think that's exciting. I feel like people are intrigued by Boston. They're intrigued by what it is. Why is it so hard? You know, I need to go find out. And that's, I mean, it was a hell of a women's race and the men, but I felt like the women were more spectacular. And credit to the BAA for, for bringing a deep field, because I don't know that they always have on the women's side for whatever reason. And I know they're always competing with London. So that that's a challenge because I'm sure they're competing in terms of appearance fees to get the best of the best between those two races. And they're head to head with London again this year. They weren't last year because of COVID. And so it was cool to see them have such a stack field in spite of that weak difference between those two races. So you're 44 years old. Sarah Hall runs 225 at 40. Is that yeah. just unfathomable? No, there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could do that. Like, People are always like, well, if you get your dystonia under control, you know, and I'm like, okay, first of all, I have a horrible knee, but I am going in for a tune-up in a week where they're going to drain it and then inject fluid into it. But um, to run 225 is a full-time commitment. It's, you know, I don't know what her mileage was, but I would assume it's between 100 and 120. It's It's doubles almost every day. Like I used to only not double on Saturday. It's, she has four kids. And a lot going on. And so running 225 in your prime, and I know that times have changed because of shoe technology. I Trust me, I know. But Boston, I'm impressed if you're running anything under 230 in Boston, even with shoe technology. I just am. It's a hard course. So no, I could never do that. It blows my mind. And she's like, not even like, yeah, maybe this will be it. She's like, I'm going to make that Olympic team. It blows my mind. I could not do it. I'm way too tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. I cannot imagine still training like that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> it's impressive. And to do it after her birthday is even cooler. So I wanted to mention a couple of other results that are, I think are pretty cool. You may have others. 
We've got about five minutes. Okay. Erica Kemp, mm. 233, in her marathon debut, she is now the fastest American-born black woman to ever run 26.2 miles, sponsored by Brooks, which is a fairly new sponsorship. Pretty cool to see that result. Really cool. And it makes me think like, well, what could she, she's young to the marathon. She's young to professional running. Um, but obviously that was her debut. It makes me think like, well, if you got her on a Chicago, like what could she do? She could definitely go under 230. So that's pretty cool to see her pushing the history forward. Another one I saw from a 75-year-old athlete, Jeannie Rice. Did you see this? She yes. Was 333. I mean, 333, you're not walking at all. Like these times, like they literally blow my mind. Like you're not that you're not stopping and chatting or like taking a mile break. 333, you are running the whole time and you are running hard. It's just, I wish I could be like that. Crazy. But I, I'm not. <laughs> fastest, <laughs> fastest ever time by a 75 year old over 26 miles. It won't count as a record because Boston's not record eligible, but that's pretty awesome. I do coach a woman in her 70s who finished second in Chicago last year in just over four hours. Wow. So I, I actually get to see pretty impressive results from, but but to be another 30 minutes faster and beyond is just, just crazy to me. But I did share that with my athlete. I'm like, goals. We've got goals here. Let's go get you. Nice. <laughs> I like it. And of course, I've got to shout out all of the rogue athletes that are there. We had over 50 competing. I had 31 that I coached myself on the start line and they just had such amazing days. I feel like overall from a weather perspective, this was a pretty favorable Boston. I know you weren't there, but it was coolish. Yes, it rained some, but it wasn't too bad. The wind they thought might be a big deal hit you in spots, but wasn't, wasn't terrible. I would say as far as Boston conditions are concerned, this was pretty favorable for good times. And it was fun to see that lots of Re-Boston qualifiers and some PRs even in the athletes from our crew. So i got to shout them out as well. Lastly, we have to quickly talk about one bit of tough news with the race, which is what happened at mile 21, where a running group, mostly of black athletes, was basically restricted from being able to cheer in the way they wanted to because this wall of police showed up with 10, 10 cycles police on bicycles to cut them off essentially from the course because there were quote reports that they were on the course or something like that. I haven't seen those details confirmed about exactly why the police were called into that situation, but it did seem that this was a case of them being profiled essentially and, and taken away from doing what they should be able to do cheering and supporting the race because of the color of their skin. What do you make of that? Did, did I didn't see any of it until Monday night late and somebody texted it to me because I'd been focused on my athletes and things like that. But to see that just, just took me down a bunch of notches from this high because it's such an amazing event. And yet you had this, this mark on the race because of what happened there at mile 21. I was really sad to see it. I think I'm even more sad with the reaction on social media. I have just seen the most vile posts in the last few days. Whether you think they were interfering on the course or not, I feel like this is an awesome opportunity to have a conversation and listen to what it feels like to be them. 
to be in a marathon where they are not represented and to be there to cheer on people that are running. Um, we always talk about inclusivity. Anybody can run. It's open to everybody. And I, and for a large, like a large part of it, it is, but I was just really sad to see that. You know me, I went down a rabbit hole. I watched all the videos. They, they went on the course. Yes, they did. People do it all the time. That doesn't make it right. But it felt like a police officer on a bike going by and telling them a couple times to stay behind the rope is one thing. And then what happened feels like another. Um, but I'm not even here to really, I don't even really want to judge that anymore. I just want to say I'm sad that we've gotten to this place where we can't even have like a conversation about it without it getting so ugly. And I've been my, I've just been really heavy the last couple of days still, right. Even before we started talking people on social media and, and I, it just makes me sad, like that we can't just have a conversation about it and say, Hey, this didn't feel right. What do you guys think? What did you experience? How can we make this better for everyone? How can we make sure this doesn't happen again? And maybe it's don't jump on the course and we're going to police it all the way through even at BU and even, yeah, the same all the way through. But I just feel like people um, really got ugly and that makes me sad. That's not the community that I want to be a part of. Running is so powerful. Watching those 5Ks on Saturday, I, I couldn't stop smiling. I was like, this is what our sport does. And so I want our sport to be like that. Let's have these conversations. Let's listen and let's move forward together. I don't want us to be so divisive. Boston has its faults, no doubt. But one of the things that I think the race gets credit for is the evolution. Allowing women to the race in 1972, adding wheelchairs to the race in 1975. It's it's the race that has the most opportunities and categories for para-athletes and the visually impaired. And, and obviously you can get in through qualifying, you can get in by raising funds through charity, but there's, we're not done. We're not mm -hmm. done evolving and making it better and more inclusive. And this represents an opportunity to say, hey, we're not, we did, this isn't right. And it also shines a bigger light on the other aspects of the race that may not be as inclusive as they need to be. And so to your point, why can't we just sit there, have a conversation about it, learn together, evolve together, continue to move forward together versus everybody picking a side and yelling at each other through screens. Yeah, I agree. So it's an, actually an opportunity to grow and come together closer as a community. And so I've just been saddened to see people don't want to do that. They just want to be, I don't know. They just want to be angry and yeah. Yeah. But Hey, other than that, it was an awesome, awesome, it was awesome marathon. And by the way, I appreciated you saying something about that situation on your account. I know that you probably got a lot of attacks because of it, but I always appreciate you standing up when you do. But yes, it was an amazing event. The energy was so good. Awesome elite races. The events on the weekend were next level. And honestly, I can't wait to do it again. <laughs> so, I know. I know. So, Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on to recap it all with me, Kara. I appreciate it, and I'll see you sometime, hopefully in Austin soon. We're trying to work out something there. I know. I hope so too. That'd be awesome. How's that for ending on a little bit of a teaser? Thanks to Kara for joining me. Go check out her podcast with Des if you haven't already. Nobody asked us with Des and Kara wherever you get your podcasts 
or check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.